This podcast contains mature content and listener discretion is advised. Also, be advised, we are not medical professionals and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Running through the streets, solving all the mysteries, crushes and aliens, lots of other crazy things laughing all the way. All we know is we don't know anyone and Maggie breaking down conspiracies learning all the way searching through time and space Kayla and Maggie now that's done let's crack the beer Welcome to Mystery Team Inc. And we're in. We're in. Welcome to Mystery Team Inc. I'm Maggie. And I'm Kayla. And I'm talking super podcasty today. <laughs> Casper Mattress. <laughs> article is an online-only furniture company. <laughs> I have a couch from Article, and it's great. Yeah. This they should sponsor us. Sponsor us. That just reminds me of like the old, um, my favorite murder episodes. Yes. Oh. Like that's like 2016. They were like OG Before article. the election. <laughs> pre-election podcast yeah. ads uh yeah we didn't know what we were gonna lose no um i'm very excited to hear your mystery for everyone listening maggie texted me yesterday <laughs> and said oh my god i just found the huge twist in my mystery and i can't tell you what it is and no one is picking up their phone so i have no one to talk to about it i tried to call multiple people because i can't tell kayla because she is on the podcast and I was like you're the person I want to talk to about this and I can't talk to you about it it's the one flaw in our plan it's true (laughs) because before we had a podcast we would just call each other and be like did you know that like everywhere the military is is where aliens (laughs) happen and now we have to like hold that back for like a week at a time I have a list of my like next episodes I want to do and every time I look at it I'm like oh my god I want to talk to Maggie about it and I'm like I can't it's really devastating. So if you're out there and you have friendships, hold your friends close and tell them the government secrets that you learn. Yeah, before you lose it. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? I'm so ready. This is actually so left field. I didn't even think it was a mystery when I started it. And then it turned into a mystery. I was like, I'm going to have to frame this somehow. And then it turned into a mystery. I'm so excited. Okay. Let me center myself with some box breathing. <laughs> Okay. We should do that every time. Aw. Okay. Okay, I'm ready. Are you going to... Hold on. Yeah. Are you going to tell me at the top or are you just going to go into it? I'm going to tell you. Okay, good. This is the mystery of the real Hound of the Baskervilles. (gasps) Ah! (laughs) Oh my God, I'm so excited. Okay. So this started out as me going, I wonder if the Hound of the Baskervilles is based on anything. And if Mm -hmm. it is, what is that? And we're going to start talking about about that. I'm so excited. So the Hound of the Baskervilles is the third of four Sherlock Holmes novels by Arthur Conan Doyle. There's also like 50 short stories. It was published in 1902 as a serial in The Strand magazine shortly after Arthur Conan Doyle returned from serving as a doctor in the Second Boer War. Boo imperialism. Hot take. (laughs) (laughs) This is a political podcast. Um, This novel is interesting for a few reasons. Aside from being, well, first I should say, I first became acquainted with this story on the 
1990s TV show Wishbone, <gasps> which was my favorite show. Me too. It's about a dog that like reenacts classical literature. What and kind of dog was he? A terrier yes, of some kind? He's like a Jack Russell, I think. I had <laughs> multiple Wishbone stuffed animals because they needed to be in their in different outfits. Outfits, yeah. And I was like, I can't just change the outfits on one. No. I had to have multiple. They're like and American like, Girl dolls. Like you need to losers, have the whole yeah. effect. Yeah. <laughs> It was like my prized possession, my wishbone. I had a wishbone t-shirt and I still have it. It's like <gasps> locked away in like a box because Aww. I can't, it, I've wore it, worn it to shreds. That's so And if cute. I wore it anymore, it would fall apart. So oh it's my God. just like in my keepsakes. Christmas present idea. <laughs> wishbone You know outfits? how we always get ourselves, yeah. get each other the same thing. Yeah. Maybe we get each other different dressed wishbones. I wonder if they still sell them. I bet we could find them on like eBay. <laughs> Our P.O. boxes. No, <laughs> we, we should get a P.O. box. Yeah, but specifically for wishbone related. It's going to have to be wishbone sized. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, The Hound of the Baskervilles like haunted me as a child. I loved that episode and was also terrified of it. It's probably the reason that I like slightly <laughs> scary things. Yeah. As long as there's a cute dog involved. It's yeah. not too scary. And he was Sherlock. He was Sherlock. Yeah. But this story is interesting for a few reasons. Um, number one is that Arthur Conan Doyle actually killed off Sherlock Holmes in the story, The Final Problem, seven years before he published this novel. Well, this serial. He was like, it's canon. It's not canon. It's canon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He decided to write it as a retrospective from, it's like from Watson's perspective, from a time before Sherlock died. Mm -hmm. And the public response to this, like serial and slash novel being published, is that Arthur Conan Doyle then brought Sherlock Holmes back to life, writing in that he had faked his own death mm -hmm. seven years before. Yeah, he jumped off the building into the trash truck. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, epi the episode, not the episode, the book where he dies is, he dies at the Reichenbach Falls. Yeah. Yeah. So Which if you're a fan of the BBC show, and sorry, in canon, it's three years have passed since he faked his own death. Anyway, it's interesting because he killed him off. Then he brings them back yeah. in The Hound of the Baskervilles. Um, it's also interesting and has always bothered me that it's the only Sherlock Holmes story where Sherlock Holmes isn't present for most of the book. He like disappears from the story at page like 77 and comes back at page like 181. What's he doing? He's gone for 40% of the book. He's off attending to more important matters, but spoiler alert, which I don't really think is a spoiler, he's actually solving The Hound of the Baskervilles and reappears at the end to it's like, do the reveal. It's like when the lead of a sitcom is pregnant and they write them out <laughs> yes. for one season yes. and like replace her with Megan Fox or something. I don't <laughs> or know. something, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm going to tell the story of The Hound of the Baskervilles, like the actual legend in the book. I'm not going to tell the whole book story because I don't want to spoil just, it. I want an audio book. <laughs> you can there are two good ones on audible i want you to read it to me so the story goes like this and no spoilers one day a doctor named dr mortimer comes to see sherlock he tells us that in dartmoor england there is a manor out on the moorland called baskerville hall and for those of you who don't know what a moorland is, it's a massive expanse of wild land with grass fields, peat bogs, wetlands, forests, caves, and mires. It's also, Dartmoor specifically is home to numerous prehistoric stone circles and is like a big archaeological site. And it's often covered in a thick layer of fog. Mm. And now Dartmoor is a national park. We should go. 
Yeah, we should go. I wish that we were like Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts. We're about to be. Yes. <laughs> so in the story, this doctor comes to see Sherlock and he shows Sherlock and Watson a manuscript from the 1700s written by one of the like men from the Baskerville line, from Baskerville Hall. He tells him, This paper was committed to my care by Sir Charles Baskerville, whose sudden and tragic death some three months ago created so much excitement in Devonshire. I may say that I was his personal friend as well as his medical attendant. He was a strong-minded man, shrewd, practical, and as unimaginative as I am myself. Yet he took this document very seriously, and his mind was prepared for just such an end as did eventually overtake him. So the document says that the Lord of Baskerville Hall in the 1500s was Lord Hugo Baskerville, and he was known for being cruel and lecherous. So in the story, he becomes obsessed with the daughter of a farmer who lives across the moor. She rebukes his advances. So one day when the woman is home alone, he goes to her house Mm -mm. and kidnaps her Mm -mm. and brings her back to Baskerville Hall and locks her in a room upstairs. Then he basically has a party um, with 13 of his friends and his attendants. They all get drunk. And while they're partying, she sneaks out the window, climbs down the wall, which is covered in ivy, and then runs as fast as she can straight across the moor back to her father's house. So during the party, Hugo goes upstairs and he finds that she's escaped. So he runs downstairs, raging with anger. He jumps up on the table and he declares that he will give his soul to the devil if he can catch up to the girl. Really? These dudes. Men are so fragile. I just feel like we needn't go that far. (laughs) (laughs) One of the partiers is like, you should send the hunting dogs after her. And he's like... Good idea. So he runs down to the stable. He gets on his horse and he tells his groom to release the hounds onto the moor. He gives them the girl's handkerchief to get her scent and the hounds and Hugo on horseback set off into the darkness. Why? The partiers are like, oh, fuck. This is not good. That's they said to do it. One of them said to do that. And listen, he's not going to take accountability. He's a 1500s. (laughs) squire so no no, no. he's not going to take accountability he's a man (laughs) so they grab their guns and some of them grab more wine and they all jump on their horses and they set off across the moor trouble trouble after a few miles they come upon a shepherd out on the moor and they're like have you seen this girl and the shepherd is so afraid he can barely speak Why? But he manages to tell the men that he has seen the girl with the hounds on her tail. But I have seen more than that, said he. For Hugo Baskerville passed me upon his black mare, and there ran mute behind him such a hound of hell as God forbid should ever be at my heels. And the partiers are like, okay, whatever. They're like the Quileute are werewolves. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They're like, that doesn't sound real. Um, So they keep riding in that direction. But suddenly their blood runs cold as they see Hugo's black horse, crazed, terror in its eyes, running back toward them with an empty saddle and her bridle trailing behind her. So now everybody's terrified and they're like, oh shit. So they all ride very close together, very slowly, keeping their eyes peeled until they finally see the hounds. And these are like world-class hunting dogs. And they're all in a cluster at the edge of a ravine out on the moor, Mm-mm. whimpering. Mm-mm. So most of the guys are like, I'm not going over there. <laughs> and 
three of them, either the bravest or the drunkest, slowly ride their horses down into the ravine. Mm -mm. And in the clearing, they see two great standing stones, like Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. And then in between them... I'm scared. Lying not too far away is the woman. She's dead Mm. of, quote, fear and fatigue. And not far from her lies Sir Hugo Baskerville. And standing over Hugo, (gasps) plucking at his throat, there stood a foul thing. A great black beast shaped like a hound, yet larger than any hound that ever mortal eye has rested upon. And even as they looked, the thing tore the throat out of Hugo Baskerville, on which, as it turned its blazing eyes and dripping jaws upon them, the three shrieked with fear and rode for dear life, still screaming across the moor. Good boy. Good boy. (laughs) In the story, one of those guys dies that night. Of fear. Of fatigue. From what he's seen. Good. The story says that the hound has haunted the Baskerville family ever since, appearing to members of the Baskerville family to signify their imminent death. And it tells us a number of them have died under mysterious circumstances. The manuscript closes by saying, my sons never go out on the moor at night. I hate that. Me too. So Sherlock Holmes is unimpressed by this. As he's wont to be. Really? Because we both just got <laughs> severe anxiety. I know. <laughs> so the doctor moves on and he produces a newspaper clipping about the sudden death of Sir Charles Baskerville. So the newspaper clipping explains that every night Charles Baskerville would take a walk down this alley next to the manor, which is made of hedges. It's mm-hmm. called a U alley. And on the other side of the hedges is the moor. About halfway down the alley, there's a gate that goes out onto the moor. So Charles would go out for this nightly walk. He would smoke his cigar. And on this particular night, he went out. And then the butler realized that he didn't come back. So he went out to look for him. And he found him laying at the end of the U alley face down. He called the doctor. The doctor came, determined that he was dead. He had no visible injuries, but his face was frozen in an expression of horror. Can that happen? What? Like, can you die with your face? Like, yes. And in this, in the book, I don't know if this is actually medical advice. It probably is. But in the book, they say that's that's common with things like heart attacks. And but what if you see a ghost? Probably. Okay. That's medical advice. (laughs) (laughs) This is not medical advice. So the cause of death was determined to be a heart attack, and the coroner later validated that. There was nothing out of the ordinary about the scene except Charles's footprints, which show that he walked down the alley, stopped at the Moorgate for some time, probably smoking, and then proceeded down the alley to the end where his body was found. But the weird thing was that after the Moorgate, his footprints show that he was walking on his toes or running. And there were footprints behind him. And that was Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> there were only one set of footprints because that was when Jesus carried him. Jesus on tiptoes. On his little tiptoes. <laughs> <laughs> running like a little cartoon character yeah. on his toesies. So Sherlock is like, okay, are those all the public facts from the newspaper? And the doctor's like, yes. And then Sherlock is like, okay, tell me the private facts. Mm. So the doctor tells him that in the months before his death, Sir Charles' nerves were strained to the breaking point. 
He was 100% convinced that this legend was true, and he refused to go out on the moor ever under any circumstances. And he frequently asked Dr. Mortimer if he had ever seen anything odd or heard the baying of a hound. (gasps) Three weeks before his death, the doctor came to his house, and Charles met him at the door, and the doctor climbed out of his carriage that he arrived there in, and the doctor said... I had descended from my gig and was standing in front of him when I saw his eyes fix themselves over my shoulder and stare past me (laughs) with an expression of most dreadful horror. I whisked around and had just time to catch a glimpse of something which I took to be a large black calf passing at the head of the drive. So excited and alarmed was he that I was compelled to go down to the spot where the animal had been and look around for it. Was he like, baby cow? <laughs> Horse. <laughs> Horses. <laughs> yes. Horse. Horse. It was gone, however, and the incident appeared to make the worst impression upon his mind. That was the night that Sir Charles Baskerville told the doctor about the Hound of the Baskervilles. And the doctor was not. Sherlock was unimpressed. Sherlock was unimpressed. The doctor said he was also, the doctor is like kind of of a mind of science. So he was Mm -hmm. like, I don't really think that's real, but well, I guess we'll see. So then the doctor told Charles, you need to go to London for a little bit and relax your nerves. And so Charles was preparing to go to London when he suddenly died. He was going to go to that hysterical camp for ladies with feelings and opinions. Yes. So on the night of his death, the butler named Barry Moore called the doctor. The doctor rushed over and he tells Sherlock Everything was as it was described at the inquest into Sir Charles's death, except for one detail. One false statement was made by Barrymore at the inquest. He said that there were no traces upon the ground around the body. He did not observe any. But I did. Some little distance off, but fresh and clear. Footprints? Footprints. A man's or a woman's. Dr. Mortimer looked strangely at us for an instant, and his voice sank almost to a whisper as he answered, Mr. Holmes, they were the footprints of a gigantic hound. Oh! Here's my problem with that. That's not feet. That's They're- paws. <laughs> well, Sherlock said, footprints? And he was like, footprints? A man's or a woman's? He was like, they were the footprints of a gigantic hound. I don't like that. Does it count as feet prints if it's not, if it's paws? Dogs have feet. They have paws. Yeah. They have beans. Yeah. I saw bean prints, Mr. Holmes. (laughs) (laughs) I saw toe beans, Mr. Holmes. (laughs) They were little and so cute. (laughs) So this story is not true. Thank you. But most Sherlockians are quite convinced that it's inspired by something. They do not agree on what that something is, but they are determined to figure out what that something is. And so we shall. Why do they think that? I'm going to tell you. Okay. So if you're uh, one of our listeners in England, then you probably know this, but every region of England has its own black dog legend. The Grimm. The Grimm. And if you are a Harry Potter fan, the Grimm is taken from... The black dog legend. So folklore about black dogs go back centuries. And this is not lowercase b, lowercase d black dogs. This is a folkloric entity called the black dog or a black dog. 
Um, it's a supernatural, spectral, or demonic entity that takes the form of a giant black dog. Mm. They're usually associated with death. That's why the Grim is like, if you see the Grim, you know, mm -hmm. it means you're going to die. Or meet your godfather. If your godfather is serious black. <laughs> mm, <yum>. Spoilers! <laughs> um, I saw a map from one YouTube creator where it's a map of England and it's a bunch of little, like, the counties, basically. But then in each one, it says what their black dog legend is. <gasps> That's so cool. And they all have names. Well, some of them are, like, the black dog of Littleport. But most of them have names. The most well-known is Black Shuck who is said to roam East Anglia. We'll talk about Black Shuck in a minute. There's also the bar guest, Padfoot, Guy Trash, who is actually mentioned in Jane Eyre. Guy Trash? Mm -hmm. I love this. A lot of them, their names, I think, come from, like, dialect words. Mm -hmm. um, they're often, black dogs are often associated with crossroads, old pathways, churchyards, and places of death or execution. Most notably, the black dog of Newgate Prison, who was often spotted the night before executions. Are they cute? Mm -mm, a lot of them are scary. And actually, if you Google black dogs, you will see images that people have created that truly haunt my nightmares. Like, people make the scariest fucking images of black dogs. See. There's something primal in it that, like, it triggers in your lizard brain that, like, is very scary. Ooh. I'll show you pictures at the break. I don't um, think you should look at them. I can't. I'll look at them. Okay. They're usually regarded as a bad omen. Some are so bad an omen that if you see one, it means you'll be dead by morning. Some are seen as protective spirits. Um, like the church grim, which is a dog spirit that protects a cemetery or a churchyard from thieves. Aww. I don't have time to go into the story, but sometimes they would, there was like a legend that the first man buried in a graveyard is like doomed to like walk the graveyard to like protect it. And so there was a tradition of burying a dog in a graveyard first when they like christened a new graveyard so that the dog could protect this, this graveyard. Aww. Can so that, you imagine coming back to life and then having a job. Except what like, about like a working dog who needs no, to run? If, before <laughs> they started doing the dog thing. Dogs are oh, fine. They just want to run if you're around. the guy, that sucks. And you're like, me, 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 me in the afterlife. And then they're like, just kidding. Your shift starts at nine. <laughs> Is your song the song from uh, Sound of Music? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is the song that comes out of me when I'm trying to yeah. make a fake song. Yeah. So that's the folklore. The folklore is one thing, but we actually have records of alleged black dog sightings in Ooh. England going back as far as 1127. And how recent? Oh, to this day. Today? Yeah. The records from 1127 are associated with the wild hunt, which is another folkloric motif that I don't have time to go into. But the first record of like one of these name brand black dogs <laughs> that we have... <laughs> is a sighting of Black Shuck from 1577. So it comes from a pamphlet written by a clergyman named oh, Abraham Fleming. I love a pamphlet. The pamphlet is called, I'm going to, it's, I'm going to pronounce it the way it's spelled because it's written in like Middle English. Yes, yes. It's a strange and terrible wonder. <laughs> strange. It's strange. Strange is spelled with a U and wonder is also spelled with a U. I love that. It tells the story of... This monster storm that came on suddenly across the country at like 9 a.m. And everyone was in church. And according to the pamphlet, I'm going to read. Again, it's written in Middle English. Immediately hereupon, there appeared in a most horrible similitude and likeness, likeness, 
to the congregation than their present. Oh, and this is based on he got a bunch of witnesses together and wrote down their story. Okay. To the congregation than their present. A dog, as they might discern it, of a black color. At the sight whereof, together with the fearful flashes of fire, which were then there seen, moved such admiration in the minds of the assembly that they thought doomsday was already come. The black dog or the devil in such a likeness, <laughs> and then in parentheses, God he knoweth all who worketh all, <laughs> running along the body of the church with great swiftness and incredible haste among the people in a visible form and shape, passed between two persons as they were kneeling upon their knees and occupied in prayer as it seemed, wrung the necks of them both at one instant clean backwards, <gasps> insomuch that even at a moment where they kneeled, they strangely died. Was he, wait, hold on. Because he was running so fast? The dog like ran through and like did something to them with and his, their heads snapped clean backward and they died. But not with his hands. I no, mean, like with his, his, his Just by being fast? Yeah. By being like or just by fire and the devil and on fire. Oh. In the pamphlet it says, there are remaining in the stones of the church and likewise the church door, the marks as it were of his claws or talons. Beside that, all the wires, the wheels, and other things belonging to the clock were wrung in sunder and broken in pieces. The clock, like, exploded. Then the clergyman says in the thing, he's like, I didn't mention this before, but I'm going to tell you now. During the storm, it was so dark in the church that you couldn't recognize each other except during flashes of lightning. And then he says in the pamphlet... The same thing happened at a church like a few miles down in Blytheburg. The dog also appeared. Two guys died and a little boy died and someone's hand was burned. Ooh. He says, these things are reported to be true, yea, by the mouths of them that were eyewitnesses of the same, and therefore dare with so much the more boldness verify whatsoever is reported, and finishes the pamphlet with something he titles in all caps, A Necessary Prayer. <laughs> <laughs> so, experts... What was the prayer? Oh, I'm not going to read it. It's like five pages long. Well, it's, uh, like, it's like a long. Nope. Pass. It's long. Yeah. Nope. So experts suggest this was actually a fierce electrical storm, which was recorded by contemporary accounts on that date. Interesting. Because if you read the account, it does sound suspiciously like the church was struck by lightning. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine people that are kneeling are like grounding wires. Yeah. So they probably got electrocuted and died. And that's why the clock exploded because it's all metal gears. And the church door got torched by the lightning. That makes sense. And the steeple is just a big conductor. Mm -hmm. The town of Littleport has a benevolent black dog story that comes from folklorist W.H. Barrett, who tells a story of, from the 16th century, a local girl who was gathering wild mint near a lake when she was attacked by a lustful friar. Ugh. Ew. The girl was rescued by a huge black dog, oh. and both the friar and the dog were killed in the ensuing struggle. Mm. The local men threw the body of the friar into the lake, but they buried the dog with honor, and oh. the dog's ghost is still said to haunt the area, and it's like a benevolent, protective spirit. He has spirit. a job now. He has a job. So that's where we get the UK's folklore about black dogs. But what about Hugo Baskerville? I'm so glad you asked. Wait, hold on. Let me get, go back. <laughs> Give me my line. Give me the cue. That's where we get the UK's folklore about black dogs. But what about Hugo Baskerville? I'm so glad you asked. We'll find out after the break. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I walked right into that one. Uh -huh. <laughs> we'll be right back after these messages. <laughs> 
And we're back. We're back. Welcome to Spooky Pookie Time. It's too pookie. <laughs> Here at Spooky Pookie Time, it's too pookie. <laughs> okay, Cartman. Oh, was that? Here at Spooky Pookie Time, <laughs> it's too pookie. <laughs> yeah, you were doing Man. like soft Cartman. Soft Cartman. Disney bounding Cartman. <laughs> So, when it comes to the question of the legend of Hugo Baskerville, some Sherlockians believe that he was, he was inspired by Squire Richard Cabell of Brook Hall, which sits on the edge of Dartmoor <gasps> in real life. So, this is a real guy from the 1600s. He was, according to legend, soundly disliked. <laughs> he was referred to as Dirty Dick. <laughs> his, in the story, his biggest passion in life was hunting. He was known to be an evil man. It was said that he sold his soul to the devil. There was a rumor that he murdered his wife, Elizabeth. When he died in 1677, he was laid to rest in a sepulcher, and that night, witnesses reported seeing a pack of spectral hounds come across the moor and converge on his grave. After that night, people reportedly saw his ghost, usually on the anniversary of his death, leading a pack of phantom hounds across the moor on a hunt. Oh, dog with a job. (laughs) They have a job, too. So the locals then placed a large stone slab over his grave to help mitigate the problem. (laughs) Um, Did that work? Aren't ghosts non-corporeal? I guess it depends on the lore, but who knows? Let those ghost puppies out. They have to go pee. (laughs) Do your job. (laughs) So in 1990, like someone who is part of his family line did a bunch of research and put together a, like a pamphlet to help pay help pay to restore the sepulcher and the church because it was damaged during a fire. Um, and in her research, she found out that most of the stories about him actually come from a 1907 book called The Little Guide to Devon. And um, she claims that his wife survived him by 14 years. So mm. she doesn't think that he murdered his wife. Uh, it seems that, according to her research, that guy is actually... Um, a composite of a bunch of people in that family. There was like a son-in-law who was like a bigamist and had like a secret wife. There was one of the Richards had mistresses. One of the Richards or one of the um, sons loved hunting. So it seems like maybe that was not all the same guy. And it seems like because Richard and his father fought with the Royalists during the English Civil War, it's and then his father had a dispute with some locals over the mill. It seems like that's where we get the like oh, evil. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like Richard III, how it's like maybe it was just propaganda because they fought on the wrong side of the war, according yeah. to the locals. Then there's Sir Thomas Vaughn and the dog of Herguest Court. This is another contender for potential Hugo Baskerville. Herguest? Herguest. Can you spell that? H-E-R-G-E-S-T. Oh. It's not like her-guest. No, it's like Herguest. Mm-hmm. It's like Herguest. I might be pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm sure you're white. Right. I'm sure you're white. I'm also, unfortunately, mostly white. (laughs) Um, Sir Thomas Vaughan of Hergest was a real guy. He fought in the War of the Roses. He was taken prisoner and beheaded in 1469 at the Battle of Edgecote Moor. When they brought his body back to his town and buried it, his ghost allegedly started appearing all over town tormenting people. Side note. Thomas's wife was named Ellen and earned herself the name Ellen the Terrible. And this is true. I'm obsessed with her. Her cousin murdered her brother over a land dispute. So Ellen dressed as a man, 
mm-hmm. entered an archery contest. Mm-hmm. And then when it was her turn, she turned around <gasps> and shot an arrow straight through her cousin's heart and then escaped during the confusion. That's so cool. This whole episode should be about her. <laughs> like, I'm obsessed oh, with her. The mystery of her is, how'd you get so cool? How'd you get so cool? <laughs> her and Ellen Roosevelt. She and Thomas had a dog. And the dog was so beloved by them that it allegedly had its own upstairs room in their manor. And if you go to their tomb, they have effigies carved in them. Like, you know, if you go to like, this is common in England. If you go to like Westminster Abbey, all the knights, like they have these effigies on top that are like life-size carvings of them, like Mm -hmm. laying with like a sword or whatever. So their tomb is in St. Mary's in Kington, Herefordshire. It's still there today and you can visit it. And in their effigy at Thomas's feet, they carved an effigy of their dog. Just like a little dog. Yeah. It has been damaged, sadly, because it's like 600 years old. But when Thomas's ghost was haunting the town, they allegedly did like some kind of exorcism ritual, trapped his spirit inside a snuff box, and then buried it under a stone at the bottom of the Hergest pool, which is like a pond on the property. One website tells us when the water level dropped in the beginning of the 2000s, a large stone became visible at the bottom of the pool. Nobody so far has been willing to check underneath. Do it. After they put Thomas's soul to rest in the pond, the dog is said to have haunted generations of the Vaughn family ever since, appearing before them to signify their imminent death. He just wants his dad to come home. I know. Or maybe he's like a shepherding them into the afterlife. Oh, maybe he's nice. That's cute. Cute. So, also interesting work. Like, worth noting, one of Thomas's descendants married a woman from the Baskerville family who lived nearby. And Arthur Conan Doyle allegedly knew the Baskerville family. An old county archive shows his signature next to the signature of an R.H. Baskerville, which is believed to be Ralph Hopton Baskerville, who inherited the Vaughn estate in 1905. Is this maybe, like, maybe the hounds aren't real, but... Like, sometimes I'll name my Sims, like, after people I know. Oh, I'm, you're going to find out. Okay. <laughs> like, I have a lot of Sims named, like, Annie Levine. Yeah. <laughs> which is taken from, like, two people. You're going to find life. out. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. So, in 1900, Conan Doyle, which I learned Conan is actually his one of his middle. His middle names are Ignatius Conan, and Doyle <sighs> is his surname. But he typically is referred to by Conan Doyle because... I would go with Ignatius. Yeah, me too. Um, Hottest influencer baby names for 2023. (laughs) Number one, Ignatius Iggy for short. I don't hate that, unfortunately. (laughs) Did I do something right? Uh Uh-oh. Five years from now, I'd like you guys to meet someone. Ignatius Vandebunt. There's also uh, the next person I'm going to introduce right now. He became friends with a journalist writer named Bertrand Fletcher Robinson. And I'm like, I want all those names. Is Fletcher a weird name for a No, I love Fletcher. Fletch? No, I love Fletcher. And I love Birdie. (laughs) Birdie. So. Birdie's so cute. And I love, like, this is unrelated, but like Penny. I love Penny, too. So, did you see that tweet? Sorry. That is says, like, you never know how many men you slept with until you're trying to name your son. <gasps> that's hilarious. <laughs> For me, that's like, you never know how many people you hated in high school. Until yeah. Until you try to think about, like, names that you don't hate. And yeah. you're like, oh, no, all those names have really bad memories. Every me. day I think about when I'm driving, I'm like, what would I name my daughter? And then I'm like, nope. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> okay. So, in 1900, Conan Doyle became friends with... Bertrand Fletcher Robinson. He's a writer and a journalist. They cemented their friendship on 
a passenger ship back to England from Cape Town, where Conan Doyle had been serving as a doctor in the Boer War, and the journalist had been reporting. So then while on a golf trip, Fletcher Robinson, that's his last names, (laughs) I'm going to refer to them as Fletcher Robinson and Conan Doyle, but they both have first names. Can we just call him Fletcher and Iggy? No. (laughs) Um, That should be the name of our band. Thank you, Tennessee. This has been Fletcher and Iggy. Glad we finally made it to Tennessee. (laughs) So Fletcher Robinson had grown up in Dartmoor. And while they were on a golf trip, he told Conan Doyle, one of the legends of his hometown. I assume it's Black Shuck. We don't know. Wait, so the account that we have just says he told him a legend? Mm -hmm. In March of 1901, Conan Doyle wrote a letter to his mother, and he ended it with, Adieu, my dear. Excuse this short scribble. Fletcher Robinson came here with me, and we are going to do a small book together. The Hound of the Baskervilles. A real creeper. A creeper is a Victorian genre of story. Story. It's like a straight horror, basically, with like mm-hmm. supernatural elements. He then wrote a letter to his editor at The Strand, Herbert Greenhuff Smith. He said, I have the idea of a real creeper for The Strand. It would run, I think, to not less than 40,000 words. It's just the sort of thing that would suit you, full of surprises and breaking naturally into good lengths for serial purposes. It would be called The Hound of the Baskervilles. There is one stipulation. I must do it with my friend, Fletcher Robinson, and his name must appear with mine. I hope that does not strike you as a serious bar. I can answer for the yarn being all in my own style without dilution, since your readers like that. But he gave me the central idea and the local color, and so I feel his name must appear. I shall want my usual 50 pounds per thousand words for all rights if you do business. Let me know at the Reform Club. Let me have Paget if you take it. Paget was the illustrator who illustrated the original. Aww. Shaw comes. Then we have another letter, letter from him that says, The price I quoted has for years been my serial price, not only with you but with other journals. Now it is evident that this is a very special occasion, since as far as I can judge, the revival of homes would attract a great deal of attention. If put up to open competition, I could get very particular terms for this story. Suppose I gave the directors the alternative that it should be without Holmes at my old figure or with Holmes at a hundred pounds per thousand words. Ooh. Which would they choose? Holmes is at a premium in America just now. So sometime between those two letters, it went from being a straight creeper that he was going to sell to the magazine as a co-written story with Fletcher Robinson mm-hmm. into the return of Sherlock Holmes so smart. for double the price. Spoiler alert, because of history... Fletcher Robinson's name does not appear in the byline of The Hound of the Baskervilles. So what happened? So glad you asked. (laughs) So Fletcher Robinson and Conan Doyle took a trip to Dartmoor in June of 1901. And the two were driven around this, like, you know, kind of (laughs) spooky town by the Robinson family driver. And Fletcher Robinson told Conan Doyle local stories of Dartmoor. Arthur Conan Doyle wrote in a letter to his mother, Dearest of Mams. (laughs) Soft Cartman. Dearest of Mams. (laughs) Here I am in the highest town in England. Robinson and I are exploring the moor together over our Sherlock Holmes book. I think it will work splendidly. Indeed, I have already done nearly half of it. Holmes is at his very best, and it is a highly dramatic idea, which I owe to Robinson. Mm -hmm. 
We did 14 miles over the moor today and are now pleasantly wary. It is a great place, very sad and wild, dotted with the dwellings of prehistoric man, strange monoliths, and huts and graves. In those old days, there was evidently a population of very many thousands here, and now you may walk all day and never see one human being. Everywhere there are gutted tin mines. Tomorrow we drive six miles to Ippleben, where R's father lives. The family's driver who drove them around, who Fletcher Robinson knew very well because he was their family's driver, was a young man named William Henry Baskerville. Hmm. Known locally as Harry Baskerville. Hmm. And when he was interviewed for a London Daily Express article by Peter Evans on my birthday, March 16th, 1959. The day you were born, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) At the age of 88. (laughs) He produced a first edition of The Hound of the Baskervilles with an inscription from Bertrand Fletcher Robinson, which read, To Harry Baskerville from Fletcher Robinson with apologies for using the name Baskerville. Hmm. In the publishing... The only author credited was Arthur Conan Doyle. But in the first publishing of The Hound of the Baskervilles, Arthur Conan Doyle included an acknowledgement that read, This story owes its inception to my friend, Mr. Fletcher Robinson, who has helped me both in the general plot and the local details. He also gave Bertrand Fletcher Robinson a third of the royalties from the publishing of the book, which in today money is about $107,000. Ooh. Harry Baskerville, in his interview, said, Doyle didn't write the story himself. A lot of the story was written by Fletcher Robinson. But he never got the credit he deserved. They wrote it together at Park Hill over at Ippledon. I know because I was there. According to the according to Harry Baskerville, long before any of this happened, Fletcher Robinson had told him, Harry, I'm going to write a story about the moor, and I would like to use your name. He said, shortly after his return from the Boer War, Bertie Robinson told me to meet Mr. Doyle at the station. He said they were going to work on the story he had told me about. Doyle stayed for eight days and eight nights. I had to drive him and Bertie around the moors, and I used to watch them in the old billiards room in the old house. Sometimes they stayed long into the night, writing and talking together. Then Doyle left and Bertie told me, Well, Harry, we've finished the book that I was telling you about, the one we're going to name after you. He also said the two men discussed a manuscript written previously by Robinson called An Adventure on Dartmoor. In a 1904 collection of short stories that Fletcher Robinson wrote called The Chronicles of Addington Peace, his byline read, Joint author with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in his best Sherlock Holmes story, The Hound of the Baskervilles. He was quoted posthumously as having told Cambridge undergraduates that he, quote, wrote most of the first installment for The Strand. There is no record that Doyle objected to this claim. But he just didn't get his name on it. And then in January 1907, at the age of 36, six years after the publication of The Hound of the Baskervilles, Fletcher Robinson died of typhoid. Shortly thereafter, Arthur Conan Doyle received a letter from a man named Cecil P. Turner about the black dog of Hergest Court that haunted the Vaughn family, of which he was a descendant. Um, Well, he married a descendant. And he asked Conan Doyle if that was the inspiration for The Hound of the Baskervilles. And Arthur Conan Doyle wrote back on February 2nd, Dear Sir... My story was really based on nothing, save a remark of my friend Fletcher Robinson that there was a legend about a dog on the moor connected with some old family. I had no place in my eye. 
What you say is interesting and extraordinary. Yours sincerely, A. Conan Doyle. What's he doing? This is the point where the internet goes a little bit off the rails. Because <laughs> um, I do think that's a little weird. Yeah. And it, to me, it lines up that it's possible. This is very outlandish to say, but it's possible that Fletcher Robinson essentially wrote that first few chapters, which is the part with the legend of the Hound of the Baskervilles, which sounds exactly like the legend mm-hmm. of Dartmoor combined with the dog of Hergis Court. Um, and Arthur Conan Doyle didn't like really have anything in mind in that because yeah. they like co-wrote it and that Fletcher Robinson was writing it based off his experience. This is where the internet goes a little bit. D.B. Cooper had a guy waiting with another plane. <laughs> in the year 2000... Former psychologist and writer Roger Garrick Steele, after spending 11 years investigating, published Ooh. a 624-page book no. titled House of the Baskervilles, no. in which he alleges that Arthur Conan Doyle not only stole the plot from the book from Fletcher Robinson, but that Fletcher Robinson died in 1907 not from typhoid, but was poisoned with laudanum at the behest of Arthur Conan Doyle. Why? Essentially because he stole the plot and then didn't want anyone to know that he stole the plot. Who cares? Well, keep in mind didn't that... Didn't he give money to Fletcher? He did. And I agree with you. I don't think this is true, but I think the logic is that because um, Fletcher Robinson was telling people that he wrote the first installment. I bet he did. Sure. And didn't he, Arthur Conan Doyle, not like dispute that? He did not. I know. In the book, he asks the following questions, and this is suspicious. I'll give him that. It's circumstantial. But Fletcher Robinson never saw a doctor until the day his death certificate was signed, despite the fact that he allegedly had typhoid for, like, over a week. Mm -hmm. Given that typhoid is highly contagious, why did not one relative, friend, colleague, or member of his staff contract the disease? His wife nursed him, which is when he alleges the laudanum was administered. He also asks, why was his body taken from where he died to his home in Devon for burial on a packed public train when typhoid victims were almost always cremated? It's also interesting that The Hound of the Baskervilles is the only book in the canon, a canon in which, in in principle, is about, quote, the patterns of, of actions and behavior of Sherlock Holmes that doesn't feature Sherlock Holmes for 40% of it. Well, that's for money. Yes, but... The question is, was maybe part of that written by someone else yeah. as an adventure yes. on Dartmoor? <laughs> yes. Yes, it was. Arthur Conan Doyle hadn't written a book since the last Sherlock Holmes book, where he called them off. And he also actually kind of hated Sherlock Holmes. He viewed the Sherlock Holmes book as like trashy serials mm. and said, quote, it takes my mind from better things. Mm-hmm. Garrick Steele apparently tracked down a copy of An Adventure in Dartmoor and says that The similarities between the two novels are not a coincidence. I agree with that. Me too. Garrick Steele believes that Arthur Conan Doyle had an affair with Fletcher Robinson's wife and that he enlisted her to administer the laudanum. It's just so... It doesn't really track because Arthur Conan Doyle had an affair on his his first wife and married his mistress, Mm. like, the year that this would have happened. So it doesn't, like, really make sense that he was also having an affair with Fletcher Robinson's wife. Who has the time, honestly? Who has the time? They didn't even have, like, I mean, also at this time, you couldn't even text. Yeah. How do we, how do you organize that? <laughs> how did we organize meeting each other places before? 
you s- told someone you were going to be somewhere at a time and then you just had to be there. You couldn't ever cancel plans. How did you and like our friends do it? I guess we had texting. We had, texting we had those like teenagers. Yeah. Phones. We also used Facebook. Oh my God. Right. I we love would to send go out back like on a Facebook, Facebook group or like we would post a post that was like, like we post a comment like, do you want to go to Universal <laughs> this weekend? And then you'd like tag your friends and then your friends would come and be like, I'm in or whatever. We used to have full conversations on our Facebook walls. Mm-hmm. Why? We didn't know. We'd then. be like, this is so funny. And you'd be like, yeah, it's so funny. I found it on um, Albino Black Sheep. Yeah. <laughs> E-bombs world. Yeah. We'd be like, have you guys seen the end of the world? <laughs> have you guys seen um, anything from muffinfilms.com? That you just triggered something in my brain. <laughs> I made muffins the other day, and in my head, I was like, How do you not like muffins? Yes. When we so like And it. Fiend, and I was like, what is the Fiend one? If you remember what I'm talking about, <laughs> leave a post on our Facebook and wall. Just kidding. Just kidding. We don't, we don't check our tunes, <laughs> games. <laughs> so in 2000, Scotland Yard assigned a team to investigate the murder tip that they received from Fletcher Robinson. But later were quoted saying, I'm going to do an accent, so sorry. Okay. Had Mr. Garrick Steele said his suspicions concerned a death which occurred 100 years ago and that one of the suspects was Arthur Conan Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, we would not have taken any action whatsoever. <laughs> Wait, so he didn't say? No, he was like, I have a murder tip. I think this man may have been poisoned. And then they And probably- buried under the circumstances of dying. <laughs> I don't know exactly what he said, but that apparently, so according to this good. article, he did not mention the <laughs> fact that one of the suspects was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> oh, I love that. So he submitted an, an application to exhume the body of Bertrand Fletcher Robinson and test it for laudanum poisoning. The church where he's buried said no. <laughs> and that's the end of that. <laughs> I just feel like, can you imagine getting a murder tip and then they're like... Um, you show up and he's <laughs> like, he died in 18... What, when did he die? 1907. <laughs> so according to the guardian who spoke to a representative from the sherlock society because we got to know what they have to say about all this Mm. they said we were all wondering what was going on and there was some furious emailing back and forth but now we think his claims are speculation said roger johnson of the sherlock Holmes society nick utechen radio producer and editor of the society's newsletter describes garrick Steele's claims as quote ludicrous I honestly can't say this research is worth anything at all. There's no doubt that the bones of the Baskerville story came from Robinson, but there's no evidence that I can see that he had an affair with his wife or went on to murder Robinson, he said. Garrick Steele's book has 2.3 out of 5 stars on Amazon, three reviews, one of which reads, in part, I can state unequivocally that this is positively the very worst book I have ever seen. <laughs> seen. Not even read. Seen. <laughs> And very worst book is in all caps. I can't believe that it's 600. (laughs) Very worst book. (laughs) Perhaps this is all best explained by the preamble that Fletcher Robinson wrote for a story that he contributed to Novel Magazine in July of 1905. He wrote, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is a type of the strong, clear-headed, generous Englishman a very contrast to all that appertains to decadence. Yet there are many horrors in Sherlock Holmes. It was from assisting him in The Hound of the Baskervilles that I obtained my first lesson in the art of story construction. Imagination without that art is poor enough. In the end, it seems to me, after much independent research, that they worked on the story together, 
maybe even in like a mentor-mentee capacity. Mm-hmm. Like he had this great idea for a story. Conan Doyle was like, here's how story structure works. Let's do it together. They stayed up late talking. And that became what Arthur Conan Doyle wrote. Maybe even borrowing passages or maybe he did write like the legend of the Hound of the Baskervilles could be Fletcher Robinson's writing, you know, that Conan Doyle then punched up or whatever. I think that's what it is. I think that's probably the case. Um, I think Arthur Conan Doyle asked the publisher if they could publish it under their both their names. I think the publisher said no, because people don't come for Fletcher Robinson. They come for Arthur Conan Doyle. Um I think they realized that if they made it a Sherlock Holmes story instead of the straight creeper they were writing, they could get double the money. Mm-hmm. And that would be enough to pay Fletcher Robinson for yeah. his contributions. And then they rewrote it as a Sherlock story, which is why I think Sherlock appears yeah. in the first scene and the last scene and yeah. not in the middle. Because I personally think they wrote it with a main character and then just made that Watson. Because it's yeah. Watson goes to Baskerville Hall and he's the one that's experiencing everything. Interesting. And it's all through his perspective. And then yeah. in the end, Sherlock Holmes shows up. And I was like, and was like, well, I was actually here all along and I've solved it, basically. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which is in character. But like, that's, I think, why. Yes. Um, And then he gave him the acknowledgement and paid him a third of the royalties. Great. And that is the story of the real Hound of the Baskervilles. Scary. And this is the... Three-page work cited that I made. <laughs> Is it MLA format? In MLA format. No, you didn't. In case anyone wants to go read <laughs> any of these <laughs> articles. Is it really MLA format? It very much is. It's just not spaced correctly because I didn't want to waste well, paper. Well, then it's not MLA format. It is, though. The spacing is important. When I post it online, I'll space it. This is amazing. Thank you. <laughs> the Hounds of Baskervilles. Wikipedia, 11 October 2022. Wikipedia. This, I fucking hate this shit. It's so stupid. I mean, this is amazing, but. Well, people might want to look it up. MLA format is dumb, though. Yeah, I agree. Why don't we just. But don't you want to know where to read all of Arthur Conan Doyle's letters? Yes. Saucy. I love this. This is our second Arthur Conan Doyle mystery. It is. I love Sherlock Holmes. We love Sherlock Holmes. And Richard Light. Wait, what was his name? Something Richard Green. Lamb. Richard Lancelin Green. Lancelin Green. I love that guy. Aww, he was cool. Yeah. That More was great. Sherlock Holmes stories. I'll do my next one on Sherlock Holmes. Okay. And it's how'd you get to be so good at that? <laughs> <laughs> well, or or maybe the next Sherlock Holmes esque one can be the Dickens unfinished oh, novel. Oh, that's great. We should do that. Yeah. Put it on the list. Okay. This was a blast. Thanks for listening. It was spookier than liked it. I anticipated. I know. I'm just in a spooky, goofy mood because it's <laughs> technically here in the past. It's still not Halloween yet. So. This has to be evergreen. Uh. <laughs> it Listen, spooky is good any time of year. Let yeah. me rephrase. In my heart, it's always spooky time. <laughs> so I'm just still in a spooky, goofy mood. No, it's okay. It is almost Halloween. I'm so excited. Thanks for being here. That was great. Thanks for listening. Thanks I for hope doing everyone enjoyed your... it as much as I enjoyed <laughs> learning about it. Thanks for your MLA bibliography. You're welcome. I wish that someone could have, I wish that there was just like video footage of me when I first realized that there was any contention that Arthur Conan Doyle didn't write The Hound of the Baskervilles. Like I was like, like I had literally written, already written like a 10 page, this whole, I'd written this whole thing <laughs> and I was like, ooh, spooky dogs. And like, had there's more, I had to cut a bunch of stories of like other dogs and shit because I was like on like page eight and then it was like, and maybe he didn't write it. And I was like, 
oh no and then when i saw garrick Steele's work that was like did arthur conan doyle murder his best friend lost my mind anyway i think we got to the bottom of it yeah I think, to your question earlier, I think that the Black Dog story is a compilation of, it's a composite of multiple Black Dog folklore. Okay. I think the Vaughn Dog definitely fits into it. Mm-hmm. The, they, the members of the family are haunted by the dog that comes every before they die. Yeah. Is literally the Sherlock Holmes story. Yeah. And then the Dogs on the Moor is literally Black Shuck, um, Richard Cabell. Mm-hmm. So, who knows? My only question is, what did Fletcher die of? Typhoid. Technically. But then why was his body taken on the train, Maggie? Good question. We got to ask Garrett. It's also interesting because his wife gave conflicting. In one account, she said like, oh, he was sick for eight days and then something. And then in another, she said he was sick for like two weeks. And something interesting is that he had gone. I don't know if this is true. I have to double check it. Like fact check it. So take it with a grain of salt. But he had gone to Egypt to do reportage on an alleged curse of a mummy. And that's where he got typhoid, supposedly. And Arthur Conan Doyle had actually warned him not to go and tempt fate. He was like, don't go. Because Arthur Conan, Do- Arthur Conan Doyle was a little bit of like a spooky guy. Mm-hmm. We remember in when Agatha Christie went missing, Arthur Conan Doyle enlisted a psychic to try to find yes. her. So he was like, don't go get cursed by that mummy. He told Fletcher Robinson not to go because he was like, you're going to get cursed by a mummy, maybe. Like, don't tempt fate. It could, it could, you could bring, it could be weird. And that's where he got sick. And that's how he died. Interesting. So that's also a little weird. But then it's just the circumstances surrounding his death and his body that I am a little suspicious of. Yeah. And it's all, but yeah, again, it's all, it's literally circumstantial. It's just circumstances. (laughs) But it's interesting. That was great. I learned a lot. Thanks for being here. Thanks for all your hard work. I had fun. I hope everyone else enjoyed that as much as I did. (laughs) I really enjoyed it. And we don't know. Stay in your lane. Fuck all the buck up. Puppy smooches. <laughs> Puppy smooches. <laughs> big beans. Yes, big beans. Goodbye. Goodbye.